Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Bob Larson and Bob Weber. Morning, guys. Good morning. You, hey, Brad. You, you only have the Bobs today. That's right. Dustin is out today. He wasn't able to make it in this morning, but we're going to have several good things that, that we talk about today. And, and one of them, I wanted to tell you guys, I was at a, a meeting last week. It was a, a crowded meeting. We'll, we'll talk more about it as we get on later. But in the meeting, they had a panel discussion. So at the, at the break, they're asking questions, question answer session. Guy in the middle of the room made a lot of friends because he raised his hand. He said, I have two comments. First comment related to traceability. Second comment, also very important, is he said, for the wait staff in the room, please be sure to leave the tray of bacon. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, so at a national meeting, it, it is important to uh, make sure that uh, you've got there, appropriate I, snacks for the break. There were other people in the room applauding him. It, exactly. No, no clap, one right? was upset about that. There were some other discussion points that people talked a lot about, but <laughs> no, everyone was in agreement that bacon was a good thing. Well, it's good to have, have some. So some, did, did they actually leave the bacon? I think so. By the time I made it back there, it was gone. It was gone, yeah. Lots <laughs> so, of peer pressure to it leave was the good. bacon. So on, t- on today's episode, we will talk about the NIAA, National Institutes for Animal Agriculture, traceability meeting, talk about some of the things ongoing nationally. We'll talk about cull or market cows. What do mm-hmm. we do with those open cows? But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about where we left off last week, and we talked about forage testing. And we had some discussion here, and we had a little debate about forage testing, what are our plans, how are we going to... Should we do it or not? So we put out some polls, and I, and I wanted to say I really appreciate everybody that responded to the poll. We had great response on both Facebook and Twitter. One of the interesting things that we found was really interesting. From, the, from the poll results, we asked, do you test your forages going into the, into the winter season? And on Facebook, 76% of the people said, yes, we test our forages. On Twitter... 26% of the people said yes. So it was just opposite between the two platforms, kind of like as we were discussing before we came on the air, kind of like what you guys were saying, whether or not you should test your forages. So I'm going to open up with kind of where we left off last yeah. week. Should you test your forages coming in? And Bob Weber, I'm going to start with you. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm kind of a proponent of, of doing it mostly because I'm, I'm kind of tight and, and, and I don't like to spend money where I don't need to. But uh, hay testing to me is one where... I can get that 20 or 30 or $40 of, of sampling costs back, depending on um, what my supplementation strategy is going to be. And there's, I think, some real value in knowing what you've got as, as a forage resource um, going, into, uh, uh, going into winter and getting it in time that you can do some strategic purchasing of the particularly protein supplements that you might use. Um, I also kind of like sort of the, the mid-range samplings because in terms of product because you get um, calcium and phosphorus um, uh, as part of that. And what, so, do you, what do you mean mid-range sampling? So in terms of price. Price. Um, so not so, the cheapest one because then yeah. you just get dry matter and crude protein. Yeah, basically. that's what I was going to ask you is what, what do you want from your uh, forage analysis? What, what analyses yeah, do you want? So, um, you know, I, I typically like uh, uh, sort of the dry matter – uh, crude protein, calcium, phosphorus, and they, usually those packages come with some other stuff, but those are the main ones I'm after because in those like gestating th- cows, the things I'm going to have to supplement over winter are I need an energy source, so the hay. i got to provide a protein source uh, or two uh, to make sure we meet protein requirements, and then mineral supplementation is key, and if I'm going to feed some kind of uh, distiller's product, for example, I may be able to back off substantially, particularly the phosphorus content in that 
um, so mineral supplement. So on, I save money on, yeah. on, so I don't over supplement um, on the mineral side. So, so when you're, when you're talking about mid range and price. Can you ballpark that for me? Knowing that there's range, yeah, there's range the in the marketplace, and, and and we do some work uh, through the analytic lab here at uh, Animal Science, and that middle test costs thirty bucks uh, mm -hmm. for a sample, um, and so making sure that, um, and, and we can talk a little bit if you want about uh, sampling strategies, um, uh, getting a good representative sample um, yeah. plan on about thirty bucks. So, well, so let me come back to sampling strategies. Bob so, Larson, tell me, do you, what about, do you want a hay test when you're, when you're going into fall? So I, I'm going to answer yes and no, in that I, I, I do see the value of, of testing forages. I think some of the things that uh, Bob Weber said is exactly right. But then I'm also going to use some of my experience was when I was in veterinary practice and I, I worked with some clients that were very interested in, in forage testing and the client and I were climbing all over a hay barn, trying to get samples from different, you know, cuttings, different sources of hay you know, and, and working really hard to get a lot of different forage samples, doing it right, sending those in, and then you've got, you know, this, this analysis that gives me the numbers that I want, and I can plug it into my computer program. But what I really found was, even when I did all of that work to get as accurate a forage analysis as I could get, I still needed to watch the cows, in that I couldn't just make a ration and and forget about it over the winter time because it invariably I either overestimated or underestimated you know the nutrient content of the forage and so I was going to need to make some adjustments anyway so I still have to watch the cattle I still have to be willing to change my mind and so I, I would say that while forage testing is important what I'm really looking for is to so say I'm a producer or a veterinarian in a geographic area is to get a really good feel for the forages in my area. So what do I typically mean by uh, the nutrient content of the prairie hay or brome hay or whatever that I'm growing in my area? What, what do I mean by that? What's an average? What's a range? And then I kind of use those um, going forward, whether I absolutely test this group or not. So I'm going to say I see the value of forage testing. But it's not the end all. I, it, I, I need to work harder than just that to, to really manage winter cow costs. And if, you're, and if you're not formulating a ration, if you're not going to use the information from the forage test, then it doesn't make sense to do that. Well, but that's you, true. But you've got to come up with some sort of plan well, for putting it together. And whether you estimate, and you're saying you'd estimate based on book values, and Bob, you're saying really rather would have a, a more accurate estimate of the hay that I've got on hand than just looking at the book because book values may not fit my area or this growing season or this particular batch of forage that I got. Is that, yep. that what you're yeah, saying? that's and I, I think that's exactly right. There's enough variation that um, you know either to the good side or extreme to the bad side that that knowing that um, you know average book values are, just that they're average book values, and um, in a typical growing season, they're, they're probably reflective. But if you're going to go to the effort of of testing, I sure think you know going to the next step of okay, let's put together a ration. And so I would you know encourage you know all I shouldn't say all most of our extension agents around the state use brands, mm -hmm. um, a ration a balancing program. software. Um, put it in, and it'll it, go go consult with your extension specialist, and they can put together a ration that's a least cost one, using your forage test to tell you exactly what kind of supplements to sort of take out a little. Because I agree, Bob, uh, you got to go look at the cows, 
And if you've used book values, it's even more important to go look at the cows and make make adjustments in um, uh, nutrient availability. Because for most producers in Kansas, the hay supply that we provide over the winter is supplement to some grazed forage that yeah. they're going to get. And if we're way off in terms of either forage availability or the quality of our standing dormant forage, then those kind of adjustments become really important to meet both energy and protein requirements for those and cows. I, and I would throw in, when you say look at the cows, I agree with both of you. I think that's critical, but it is very hard to see subtle changes over time. And the analogy that I've used is like you look at your kids. So we've got kids, all of us have kids, and as your kids grow, you don't see that on a daily basis where you see it is in pictures. So one of the things that I've talked about with producers is take a picture of the cows once a month, you can scroll back through them, you'll see the changes much easier than yep. trying to watch body condition change day to day because yep. they can easily creep one direction. So if you take pictures over some interval, then you can see that change a, a little bit easier. The other area that I wanted to follow up on, how you talked about forage testing strategies. So we're, mm -hmm. we're saying, yes, there are times to test and there may be times that you're okay going with book values if you're pretty sure what you're, you're getting off there. And you have to decide what suits you and your operation. Either way, you want to make a ration. But if I'm going to test, how, how many bales should I test? What percent of the forage should I test? Is it based on a per batch basis, per type of bale? What, what do you think? Yeah, so great, great, great question, Brad. And I think uh, if you go to the – I'll put a couple of links in the show notes that uh, sort of outline that because um, getting a representative sample turns out to be a bit more complicated than most it people means, think. You, it means you can't crawling go, around in a hay pile. Uh, crawling around in a hay pile, um, getting a random sample. Um, typically, the, the uh, advice is um, about 20% of the hay lot, um, but not less than the number of bales um, – Sort of outlined, and, and depending on what the hay crop is, you know that can range from three or four bales um, in a grass hay crop, for example, um, uh, from a single cutting in a single field. So, getting the lot right, if you will, in terms of, you know, we so, might have alfalfa or prairie hay from five different places um, cut over a month of time. Um, those represent different hay lots. Um, so we need to sample each of those. Um, and uh, the general advice is about 20 cores from a batch or a lot of hay. Um, and so uh, doing that randomly and getting it in the correct spot, depending on if you've got small square bales or big round bales or big square bales, making sure you get so not on the end. cores per batch, but then you would put all those cores in one mm. container for one test. Yep. So when you said earlier, like a $30 test, you'd take 20 cores Throw all in those. a bag yep. and then send that in. Yeah, and your target's about half a pound of hay um, to send to the lab because they're going to have to grind it and handle it, and you don't want to send them five yeah. pounds of hay. They're going to look at you sideways. Well, but and, um, I, and I would say, you know, some of the things that you brought up um, make me think of some of the clients that I saw that, that really worked really hard on their forage management, both standing dormant forage and hay. And one of the things that they would do is kind of based on where they thought based on you know timing when do they harvest this hay what is the grass they would try to place them in storage whether it's stored inside or outside in ways that allowed them to um, get the hay they wanted in other words they wanted to use their higher quality hay for growing heifers and they could use lower quality hay for dry cows but you have to have them in a place where i can in the actually, barn in the right way yeah, yeah that yeah, i yeah. can actually get them that way and so again putting some real thought into it. And I'm impressed, again, I'm thinking of some of my clients that, that really did a great job of 
thinking all the way through to how they were going to manage their forage, trying to get the most out of it. Yeah. So simple things like putting the hay in from the side of a rectangular barn versus the end of a rectangular barn so that you've got those various got more. access points to get, get at it and you don't have to move, you know. So I think that, and, and absolutely, as you plan for the fall, and, and one of the things that we emphasized, come up with the ration. The second thing we emphasized is you're still going to have to the, watch the cows. Watch the cows, and and have a strategy for both. So don't just don't just wing it and get behind and then have to play catch up. Yep. So the other thing is we as we think about strategies, and and I started out talking about the NIAA traceability meeting. So this is a meeting I went to Bacon. last week, and it was the what's that? Bacon. <laughs> bacon. Yeah. <laughs> Got my was, attention. It was very good bacon. Uh, they it was a good discussion and so this meeting was you had representatives from different states there were representatives from cattle agencies or producer groups in multiple states as well as state government in the form of state veterinarians uh, there were some academic folks there there were some individual producers there and the goal was to discuss traceability and for the beef industry what are the potential benefits and, and how could we implement it one of the big discussion points was how do we how do we kind of roll this out at a larger scale and there the questions are what are some of the benefits to individual producers and, and as you guys think about it where do you see traceability as it fits into the beef industry as far as if i'm a cow calf producer or a feedlot or somebody else how does tra how does traceability help well, well, there's one thing that I think um, it's, it's a little hard to put a number on because it's really about protecting markets, both domestic and foreign. So um, if you've been following the news, um, animal disease can make a big impact on a, on a nation. So China right now is dealing with African swine fever. And, yep. and that is, that is going to have tremendous impact on that country and on, on world meat trade. And so because of the importance that animal disease has in that area, I think one of the, the first, and maybe as a veterinarian I might be biased, but most important roles of a traceability is to be able to do two things. One is if a disease event happens that could affect animal health and or trade, that we can stamp it out as quickly as possible. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and that's one of the things that uh, came up as the, as the benefits. The other thing that I'm going to branch off what you're saying, most countries, when you look at beef cattle, many of the large beef producing countries that we've talked about in the last few weeks when Dustin's asked us questions, have traceability programs in place. Mm -hmm. Many of those were put in place as a result or in conjunction with some type of disease event. You don't get the same level of program and it still takes longer to come back because you're putting it in place kind of, kind of after, after, the, after the horse the already out of the barn. Yeah, proverbial yeah. trying to close the barn door. And I think, Bob, your, your point on um, sort of the trade aspect is important. I think, you know, here in Kansas about if we, God forbid it happens, but um, you know, some big disease outbreak, disease control is important, but getting trade back moving, you know, we've got millions of head of fed cattle standing around. Um, if all of a sudden we can't ship and market cattle that are at the end of the feeding period, um, or we've got to you know, euthanize large numbers of animals because we didn't have a good traceability system, um, the costs just start spiral spiraling out of control. You know, there's not enough dirt to cover up all the potential deads um, from a euthanasia event. So how do we figure out, you know, who's been exposed, um, which animals are um, in transit and safe to go to harvest? Um, I think there's, there's you know, a, a real cost side to the, the situation that I think oftentimes we don't 
sort of sit back so, and think about worst case scenarios. But when you worst case scenario, that dollar value versus how much it potentially costs to put the system in place are on literally different planets. And I think the, and I think the long term benefit is there. And you're talking about it similar to an insurance type program. So right. it allows us to have the resumption of trade for that potential disaster that comes up in the short term. The other thing that came up at the meeting, there was a fair bit of discussion on was if we had a traceability program in place for disease mm-hmm. control or disease monitoring, be able to handle those issues you guys just talked about, could it also be used for some potential value added type projects? And, and certainly. And so if, if you had that infrastructure in, pr- in place, depending on the setup, but that, that part would be more of a voluntary participation, not part of the overall traceability system. And, and at this point, everything's voluntary, so I don't want to give any miscommunication there. Uh, one of the things that also came up was through our, can, there's a Kansas pilot, actually Cattle Trace is the name, and it's moving beyond just Kansas. So there's cattle coming in from different areas, but they'll feed through the system. And as part of that pilot project, the goal is to really build that infrastructure and evaluate how it would look as it goes forward. And as part of that, we're seeing calves start to get tagged, move through the system. We'll see more of that this fall. We'll actually have a time where we get the we'll get the program coordinator come in and visit with us about how she's setting everything up and what they're seeing yeah, as far as uh, I've been talking to some producers that are again starting, you know, as they're processing calves this fall, getting ready to to wean them and, and move them through the auction market. Um, that they're they're tagging them with the cattle gate cattle trace tag and it's kind of exciting to see we're going to try this out yep absolutely and i I think this will take a look at feeder calves which we have traceability systems in place for some of our older adult animals as they move through but this will give us a chance to look at how those feeder calves perform speaking of older adult cattle that move through the marketing system we've talked a little bit about preg check it's that time of year to preg check and we've talked about how to manage the weaned calves, a little bit about the pregnant cows. The one class that we have not touched on is those that are open. And typically, we will talk to them about as cull cows. An article came out by Chris Ringwall from North Dakota, and he said, no, no let's not call them cull cows. Let's call them market cows. What do you guys think? I, I, first of all, I usually like to hear what Chris has to say. He's usually got some good comments. Pretty well thought out. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm going to agree with him on this one. That, and, I, and I find myself talking about cull cows or cull bulls. And his point was that when you look at, a, at the weight sold off of a typical ranch, that the weight of cull animals is about a third of the weight sold off of a ranch. So pounds sold compared to the pounds of calves weaned, a third of it is cull cows? A third of the total pounds. Market cows? Yeah, so, so, yeah there you go. <laughs> right. A third of the total <laughs> pounds sold. In, in a, so in a ranching operation where they retain their own heifers, um, so about two-thirds of the weight being marketed off the ranch is uh, young calves, wean calves or yearlings, uh, and about a third would be would be market cows, and I'm going to say cull cows and cull bulls. And so that's not a third of the value, but it's about 20% of the value on a ranch. And his point was, again, it's kind of one of the things we were talking about uh, when we were talking about forage testing. Um, there's an opportunity to, to kind of up your management, to really look at these cows. So things like timing of marketing. As uh, Dr. Weber, what, what have coal prices done this week, Dr. Weber? Um, in the tank, right? So the uh, the market's getting a little flooded with uh, with open cows. Partially, um, I'm getting some reports that you know there's a higher percentage of open cows this year, um, and so the the 
the inventory of those moving into uh, the market cow. Um, and it's still, it's still a little early, right? Yeah, it's, it's still very early, early October. Yeah, it's still we're, we're on the front end, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, there, I saw a, a Facebook post. Somebody was complaining about uh, what happened to the cow market because um, they sold two market cows and they didn't gross a thousand bucks between the two of them. Yeah. And, um, um, so, you know, the timing is really critical and, and managing, I mean, we think about 20% of the ranch level or farm level revenue dependent on these animals. That's actually worth paying attention to, Mm -hmm. you know, if it was 2% or something, you go, ah, that's a bunch of headache, but 20% can move you from not making money to, you know, break even or profit. And, there's no sense, you know, given given that value. Don't just forget about them. And, and right. Bob, like you mentioned, there's there's sometimes some ways that you can add some value to those cold cows. You don't want to, maybe don't want to go overboard in every situation, but do the math and figure out: Should I try to breed them? Should I try to do something different with them? Should I try to feed them? What, yeah. what do you think? Well, I think the two opportunities to add value to these. Well, I'm going to say three opportunities. One is market timing. So it might be an earlier preg check to try to beat the the rush as far as that goes or do a preg check at whatever time is convenient but then hold those cows and as long as you have the the forages i mean this is a this is a an animal especially if she's a little thin she'll put on weight pretty efficiently and so if i've got the available feed and forage uh, she's actually going to have a nice cost to gain and so keep her around for a while and then the markets tend to rebound after the first of the year or so and so if you've got sufficient uh feed and forage uh, you can do two things, put pretty good cost of gain on her and hit the market timing. The other opportunity is, particularly for a fairly young cow that ends up being not pregnant, is to turn her in with turn her in with a bull, get her pregnant, and then sell her as you know an off-season to another. So if we're going to talk, talk about spring calving herds. So if I'm spring calving herd, I can create some fall calving cows that then can be marketed to someone that does calve in the fall. Or I could just have a new fall herd now. Well, let's let's think that through before we jump into <laughs> whole new enterprises. <laughs> but but certainly, getting her pregnant adds value to her. Is and if you've got a, a market that wants those pregnant fall cows, and there there is a market for that. Yeah, particularly those young. You know, you take two, three, four year old cows, which you know from a reproductive standpoint, that's typically the higher fallout group anyway. Making falls out of those um, uh, and carry them through to to next spring or early summer um, generates a big value difference versus you know sending them off to work for McDonald's. So that's right, and and I did especially those young cows, and those are the ones that we can put weight on effectively too. Yeah. A lot of times they've just weaned that calf; they're they're catching up. Put weight on them, get them bred. You add some value. I would agree with your comment that I, I wouldn't jump into now I've got a new fall herd because you have to look at does that work in your system or not. And what you did is I also added another six months of cost to that cow. She has to pay me back somehow. So it's, it's more time coming back. So we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure, as we go forward. One other question I want to get to on cold cows. We're running through the chute. We're processing. We're moving very rapidly. Uh, we before we preg checked, we'd actually done the vaccinations, the pour on, the dewormer, can I, and she's open. Can I still call her? Anything I should worry about? Oh, I hate being put in that situation because no, you really can't call her. You need need to check your labels, but many of the products we use in in cow processing this time of year do, does have a withdrawal time. So some of the vaccines we have have a withdrawal time. Um, and the porons that we have for parasite control would have a, a withdrawal time. So read your labels, but it would not be uncommon to need a, a 30-day withdrawal time on a cow that's been processed. And, and so in general, what you'd like to do is wait and determine is she 
open or pregnant before you do anything before you do anything particularly if you do want to market her pretty soon yeah yeah so that's just something to be aware of and check the the labels on your check labels on your products because we think about withdrawals with antibiotics but they're also on vaccines uh and parasiticides as well yeah so the the last thing I want to ask you guys, and and good discussion today on the on the forage testing. We talked about cold market cows. Next week we're going to talk about growing heifers. So if I weaned my heifers this week and I plan to keep them for breeding heifers, what should be? And I'm going to put you on the spot, and then we'll follow up with details next week. What should be my rate of gain, average daily gain for those heifers between now and April? All right. Well, I'm going to say I'm going to try to target them to gain. Um, I'm going to put a lot of selection pressure on age at puberty. So I'm going to say pound, eight-tenths to a pound a day gain. Uh, eight, eight and, and I'm going to gonna aim for about 55% of a mature weight. Yeah, so I'm going to say probably a pound and a quarter, maybe pound and a half, and I'm going more for this. So you're almost six. you're almost double. You're a pound and a half and he's eight tenths. So we'll, we'll have to sort out why you guys have such yeah. different opinions. Maybe a that. pound and a tenth, but not less than a pound a day. Not less than a pound. See, you backed off. <laughs> Stick to your guns. Well, I'm doing the math in my head. That's six <laughs> months away. So you got plenty of time. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, we will discuss that next week on, on how we should plan that for the nutrition for the heifers. Thanks for joining us.